I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Peter. We've been in this book of 2 Peter for, Peter for a few weeks now. Uh, we want to turn now to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, just tell you a brief uh, story quickly. This quarter I've been having the privilege of facilitating a class for our, our Presbytery Seminary program. And this class happens to be on what is called the General Epistles, which covers the book of Hebrews, First and Second Peter, uh, Revelation, the book of James, these great books. And we were talking about Second Peter just this week. And we were talking about why it is that Second Peter is so neglected in the Christian tradition. You might remember my first week here, I, th- I said R.C. Sproul, I think, called Second Peter the neglected stepson of the New Testament. There's not a lot of resources available. You don't hear a lot of sermons through Second Peter. And one of the students said something that I thought was pretty profound. He said, I, he said, I think Second Peter is not preached on very much today because we don't believe, really, that there are false teachers anymore. And that false teaching is a problem the church faces. And I just thought that was so true. It reminds me of a, reminds me of a song from the reformed hip-hop artist Shai Lin. There is uh, such a thing as reformed hip-hop. And... Um, <laughs> He, said, he has a song called False Teachers, which is great, by the way. You should listen to it. In that song, he names false teachers by name so that we would know who not to listen to and be deceived. But he says, in that song, he says, basically, in today's church, the only heresy is saying that there is heresy. And I think that that's very reflective of where the church is at. But we want to study all of God's word. We want to know it. And it is a shame, as we read through Second Peter, it is a shame to see how neglected this book is because it is so relevant to the people of God today. Second Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now, it's been a few weeks since we were last in Second Peter. We left off several weeks ago at the end of chapter 1, where Peter begins to engage directly with the false teachers who were presently in the church and who would arise within the church. And in that portion of Second Peter chapter 1, we begin to see Peter do something uh, in his engaging with the false teachers. He began to defend, the theological word is offer up an apologetic. He began to offer up an apologetic on one particular doctrine, the doctrine of the bodily return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to judge the living and the, the dead. Where we left off last time was Peter's apologetic for the second coming. The false teachers, it seems, in Peter's 
uh, day who were infiltrating this church that he was writing to were questioning. But they were not just questioning. You know, it's one thing to question teachings. It's one thing to question doctrines. They were not just questioning the doctrine of the second coming. They were flat out teaching against the idea of the second coming. So Peter has to defend it. Now the question is, why did they do that? Out of all the Christian doctrines that we hold dear, why would the second coming of Jesus come under attack from these false teachers? Well, we understand the answer to that question when we remember who these false teachers were. They were, most likely, an early incarnation of what we call the Gnostic heretics. As I said two weeks ago, you may be familiar with the Gnostics. Several years back, when the book and the movie The Da Vinci Code came out, the driving uh, philosophy or worldview behind that movie, that book, was Gnosticism. Much of the <clears throat> Da Vinci Code was focused around Gnostic writings, such as the Gospel of Thomas, which is commonly called a Gnostic Gospel. And the claim from the Da Vinci Code was that at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, which is where uh, we begin to get the, the Nicene Creed, which we use in our church uh, as our confession of faith around Advent season, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, Emperor Constantine basically held a book-burning ceremony where all these books, like the Gospel of Thomas, were thrown onto a big fire so that they would be lost forever to history. And this way, Constantine and the other church leaders who were there at the church council could push and promote the version of the Bible that we have today. And they could do away with any accounts which would call into question the legitimacy of, in particular, the four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, call into question Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was all a big conspiracy theory, you see. And I remember at that time, beloved, I was working in a Christian bookstore. It was quite amazing to me to see how many Christians were confused and worried and scared, didn't know how to handle the claims of the Da Vinci Code, didn't know how to handle the sudden reemergence of Gnosticism. And they were coming in and they're like, there are all these books, supposedly the Bible, that we don't know about, and now they're lost to us. And what do we do about this? I have to say that that was a turning point in my own life because... Through that experience, I began to realize how important things like studying church history actually was. Because had evangelical churches valued church history, had they been teaching their congregants about church history, then many of these folks who came into our store during that time would not have been confused or thrown off or worried or so on. Because the reality is, the claims that books like the Da Vinci Code make are claims that Christians, since the time of the apostles, have dealt with. And evangelicals would have certainly known, had they been taught church history, that at no point, no point during the Council of Nicaea in 325 was there anything remotely resembling a book-burning ceremony. 
where Constantine ordered the destruction of books like the Gospel of Thomas. That claim is completely fabricated. It is made up out of thin air. There's not the slightest shred of historical evidence to support it. And even secular, unbelieving scholars of the Bible would agree with what I just said. But the Gnostics... These are the people the Apostle Paul had to confront here in the book of 2 Peter. I'm sorry, the, the Apostle Peter had to confront here in the book of 2 Peter. And there are two particular teachings from the Gnostics which Peter had to directly deal with. The first deals with knowledge. As I noted two weeks ago, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And what the Gnostics claimed is that they had some secret spiritual knowledge, a knowledge only revealed to them, a knowledge not even the apostles themselves had. And this secret spiritual knowledge was the true gospel, the true path to enlightenment. And not only uh, was it the true path to being united to God, but it's actually the true secret path to becoming divine, becoming God's ourselves. This secret knowledge was the true path to eternal divine life. That's why Peter uses the word know or knowledge so much in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. I went through chapter 1 this week of 2 Peter. I counted how often Peter uses words which are related to or based upon the Greek word gnosis. Seven times. In just 21 verses, Peter uses some derivative of the Greek word gnosis. On top of that, there is another Greek word in which we translate into know or to know, which Peter uses at least twice in those 21 verses. So in 21 verses, Peter is talking about knowing or knowledge nine times at least. This issue of Gnosticism, this claim that they have some true spiritual knowledge, which is secret, which is unknown to the apostles, it is clearly on Peter's mind throughout this letter. The second teaching Peter has to deal with from the Gnostics is that the Gnostics ultimately claim the physical, the material creation is worthless. They deny that the one true and living God, the Lord, created the physical, the material world. They said that the material, the physical world, is instead created by a fallible, false God. And therefore, because that is true, everything physical, everything material, including our own body, is useless, worthless, has no eternal value, and the true God doesn't care about it. The true God only cares about what is spiritual. And therefore, the Gnostics in Peter's day would say, you know what? Because that's true, because God does not ultimately care about the physical, the material realm, you can live however you want. You can do whatever you want with your physical bodies. It has no ramifications. There's no eternal consequences. And so in the areas especially of sexual ethics, the Gnostics were saying, Anything goes. Don't worry about it. And of course, this would explain why earlier in chapter 1, Peter would emphasize the need for us to supplement our faith with virtue. Peter was saying, listen, as Christians, it matters tremendously how you live. 
God does care about what you do in your physical bodies. He cares about what you do with your flesh and your brains and your eyes and your hands. And so make every effort to supplement your faith with what we called the golden chain of Christian virtue. But this teaching, what you do with your body doesn't ultimately matter because your bodies are worthless anyway and God only sees your soul and your soul is holy because he created your soul. And so, you know, the physical, God won't judge you in your physical body. That teaching is what leads Peter to have to defend the truth of the second coming of Jesus. Because if the Gnostics want their message to stick, if the Gnostics wanted Christians to really believe they could act and live and behave in any way they wanted and there would be no consequences, well then the Gnostics had to undermine the return of Jesus Christ. As long as Christians believe that Jesus would return in the flesh to judge the living and the dead according to what each of us do, that's what Revelation 21 says, the Gnostics knew that this message, that anything goes, would never take root. The threat of Judgment Day, they had to undermine, they had to get rid of that threat. So that's exactly what they did. They began to attack the doctrine of the second coming and final judgment. And Peter, as I said in the text we looked at two weeks ago, offered up his apologetic for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that should bring us all up to speed into our text this morning. Three short verses, three short verses for us to consider, and really only four points that come from those verses the first thing we need to see is that there is a shift in Peter's tone. The last time, as I said, Peter was defending the doctrine, the doctrine of the second coming. This time, Peter now is no longer playing defense. He is on the attack. He's going to now openly begin attacking these false teachers. It's no longer a game of apologetics. It is now a direct attack against them. And this attack begins right away in verse 1 of chapter 2 when he says... False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers amongst you. Now, two weeks ago, our text ended with Peter defending the second coming from the pages of the Old Testament. And in that defense, he said that the Old Testament was, was the prophetic word. And he's talked, he talked about how the prophets who wrote the Old Testament were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was defending the divine origins of the Scriptures. Now... Peter says, and he reminds us that in those Old Testament days, not only were there true prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, who had the authority to speak for God himself, there were also false prophets who arose amongst the people of Israel. And Peter is saying to his audience here in chapter 2, verse 1, Church, you need to be aware. There are going to be, and there are already, false teachers in your midst just as there were false prophets in the midst of ancient Israel. What Peter does here is he makes a direct connection between the false prophets of Israel and false teachers in the church today. And he's saying, hey, you know what? You want to claim to have a secret knowledge from God? You want to claim to have special insight, better teaching than the apostles? You want to undermine the authority of the apostles of Jesus Christ? Well, guess what? 
It is the apostles who are standing in the tradition of the true prophets of Israel, and it is you, the false teachers, who are standing in the tradition of the false prophets of Israel. That is your legacy. That is your heritage. That's how Peter begins this attack. And it might be helpful for us, beloved, if we understood just a little bit about the false prophets of Israel so as to understand what Peter's doing here. As you read the Old Testament, there are generally three characteristics that all false prophets of Israel have in common. First, they claim to speak with divine authority, but actually had no authority at all. Now, that's certainly what the Gnostics were doing, right? They were claiming they had authority from God. They had the true spiritual knowledge, not the apostles. But ultimately, they had no authority, no right to speak on behalf of God. That's the first thing. False prophets in Israel claimed to have authority when they had none. Secondly, the message of the false prophet in Israel was usually one of peace and security instead of repentance and forthcoming uh, and the forthcoming of God's judgment if Israel does not repent. So their message was always, it's okay. God will not judge us. Everything is fine. We're at peace with God. Certainly you can see that in the Gnostic message, right? Jesus and the apostles, what were Jesus' first words of his public ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. No one spoke of divine judgment more than Jesus Christ. The idea of repentance and judgment was so essential to the message of the apostles. But these false teachers, they're saying, ah, Jesus isn't going to return. Jesus isn't going to judge us. Don't worry about it. We're at peace with God because our souls are pure. It's essentially the same message. It's the false prophets of Israel. Thirdly, this is so important to what Peter is saying about false teachers. The false prophets of Israel were always universally condemned and punished by the Lord himself. And the implication, of course, that Peter makes, and we will see this more clearly, is that all false teachers are condemned and will be judged by the Lord those were the, 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 the characteristics of the false prophets of Israel. Those are the characteristics of the false teachers in Peter's day. And so with that in mind, as I said, four things for us to consider in our remaining time here this morning, beloved, from these three verses. Four things that will help us as a congregation recognize and defend the church against false teachers. The first is this. We can see from these verses what it is that all false teachers do. That's the first of the four things Peter shows us, what all false teachers do. And Peter gives us three things false teachers do. First, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Verse 1. Now the word secret here is one of those words that's a little tricky to translate from Greek into English. The emphasis is not so much on the idea that false teachers False teachers were using secret means to bring secret methods to bring in heresies. Rather, it's on the idea that they are bringing in something that is previously unknown to the Christian church. They are introducing an element which is foreign or from the outside from outside of established Christianity. It's an unknown teaching or an unknown practice, in other words. And the word heresy that Peter uses here, there's two things to note about heresy. We usually think of heresy as a false teaching, as a false doctrine. And yes, 
That is part of what the word heresy means here. But also, the word heresy that Peter uses here not only means a false teaching, but it can also mean a false practice, an, an issue of lifestyle. Now, usually the two go hand in hand, right? How you live flows out of what you believe. You can rarely separate what you believe and how you live. And that was certainly the case in Second, Second Peter. The secret destructive heresy was both an issue of teaching and lifestyle. The second thing we should note about the word heresy is that it, it emphasizes the element of division. False teachers bring division into the body of Christ. This is important for us, beloved, because causing division in the body of Christ is abhorrent to God. The Lord, Proverbs 6 says, the Lord hates the one who causes division in the body. Sowing discord, division in the church, it is the work of heretics. It is the work of false teachers. It is ultimately the work of Satan himself. And so this is the first thing false teachers do. They bring in to the church destructive heresies. The second thing all false teachers do is ultimately they deny Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 1. They deny the master who bought them, Peter says. Now, the phrasing Peter uses here shows us something about these false teachers. They deny the master who bought them. Shows us these false teachers are what we would call today apostates. At one point they made a credible or seemingly credible profession in Jesus Christ. And they were members of the church. Now they are denying Jesus and the salvation they once claimed to have. And that is usually how false teachers worm their way into the local church, beloved. They begin by talking, by acting, by professing to be Christians. Slowly over time, they start to bring in those outside, unknown elements. You know, maybe they start to say things that just don't seem quite right on the surface. Maybe you're in a Bible study. Someone says something and you think, what? That seems to be outside the boundaries of what we know to be Christian orthodoxy or good Christian doctrine. And maybe at first you brush it off and you think, well, that person, surely they must have misspoke. We know this person. He's a, he's a dear brother. We love him. He had to misspeak. And over time, the misspeaking happens more and more. And pretty soon, these people are teaching and proclaiming things which are, as we will see in just a little bit, leading many away from Jesus Christ. The third thing all false teachers do is they exploit the sheep. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. False teachers, beloved, they want something from you. They want your money as we see with the false teachers in the prosperity gospel movement. They want your recognition. They want your honor. They want your respect. They want, as we see with cult leaders, your undivided, undying devotion. They, out of greed, are always seeking ways to exploit the sheep of Jesus Christ for their own personal gain. They exploit. 
And so this is the first thing we see from this text. We see what all false teachers do. They bring in destructive heresies. They ultimately deny Jesus Christ and they exploit the sheep. The second thing this passage teaches us is it shows us the results of false teaching, false teachers. And we should say, beloved, the results of false teachers in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ the results are absolutely devastating to the souls of people. I say that because in this text, Peter declares there are two results of false teachers and their heresies. First, verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. In other words, many people will follow their indulgences of the flesh that the false teachers will promote. Again, in the case of, of the Gnostics, Peter's concern is that many in the church will buy into the idea that they can live however they want with no eternal consequences, no threat of judgment. In our modern context, I would say this. Consider how many professing evangelicals have likewise followed the sensuality of false teachers. How many now in so-called evangelicalism do not believe that the Bible condemns things like homosexuality? How many do not believe within evangelicalism that sexual intimacy should be reserved only for the marriage bed and so on? But it's not just the theological liberal shift within evangelicalism that we see this. Consider, too, how many Christians have taught and believed that, hey, you know what? As long as you make a decision for Jesus, as long as you say the sinner's prayer, as long as you ask Jesus into your heart, you're good to go. You're saved. It doesn't matter how you live. Well, beloved, that too is a destructive heresy which leads to people following sensuality. We see this in so many ways today, beloved. Those who claim to be Christians, those who claim to be sheep of Jesus Christ, being led astray by the sensuality of false teachers. And ultimately, it leads to the second result of false teachers in the church. Peter says that because many follow sensuality, the way of truth will ultimately be blasphemed. What does that mean, beloved, other than the sheep will be led away from the shepherd? And ultimately, they will blaspheme Jesus Christ, who is, in his own words, the way and the truth. The result of false teachers is that the gospel itself is ultimately rejected. Jesus Christ is blasphemed. And as I said, this is devastating to people's souls. And to compound how devastating all of this is, the third thing for us to see from these three short verses is this. Peter tells us what will ultimately happen to false teachers. But understand, not just what will happen to false teachers, the implication is, beloved, what will also happen to those who follow them. We see from the end of verse 1 and the second half of verse 3 that what will happen is swift destruction. That is, judgment and eternal condemnation. Just like with the false prophets of Israel, the Lord God will indeed bring judgment upon false teachers. And yes, understand this. 
Just as the Lord did not spare those Israelites who followed the false prophets in the days of the Old Testament, the Lord will not spare those who follow false teachers in the church today. Your ignorance will not be an excuse, in other words. You can't say to God, oh, I was deceived. Have mercy on me. If you blaspheme Christ, if you deny Christ and deny the gospel, you will be judged along with the false teachers who led you astray. So let me say it again, beloved. The result of false teachers in the church, the results are utterly devastating to the souls of the people. It leads to the eternal condemnation of human beings. This is why we have to be diligent. This is why we have to stand firm on biblical doctrine. This is why we must be committed to the Word of God unapologetically. We must know it. We have to live it. We have to breathe it. We have to eat it. This is why we as a church have to always be on guard, always be ready to root out false teachers, always be ready to stamp out anything which would cause division in the church, always be pursuing the true peace and the true purity of the bride of Christ. It is not about theological nitpicking. It is not about getting into arguments and proving ourselves to be great, better theologians than someone else. It's not about trying to be smarter than the guy next to you. None of that. It is about the souls of people. Doctrine has ramifications. Good doctrine leads to eternal life. Bad doctrine leads to eternal condemnation. This stuff matters. Because false teachers will rise up and they will seek to, to destroy, to divide, to exploit. They will deny Christ. And yes, they will do it very subtly, I might add. They're going to sound like Christians. They're going to say things which will tickle our ears. They're going to say things that we want to hear. But know this. Regardless of how our ears are tickled, false teachers are seeking to seduce us into denying Jesus, seeking to seduce us into blaspheming our Lord. They are always striving to lead us away from Christ and the eternal life that is found in Him alone. They will teach anything and everything except Christ and Him crucified. So I want to end this sermon this morning, beloved, by exploring one more thing. These verses show us something they show us by way of implication. One more thing to consider this morning. Peter tells us in our text today how to recognize true teachers. If we must be on guard and seek to protect the church and the souls of the sheep within the church, the question is, how can we recognize true from false teachers? Because not only do we want to drive out heretics, not only do we want to protect the sheep from false teachers, we also want to promote. We want to promote true biblical teaching, right? We want to promote true teachers. So how do we know who they are? Let me just give you a few points of contrast, which I believe will help us discern the difference between true and false teachers. This list will be my conclusion for the sermon this morning. I'll leave you all with this list of contrasts. If, as Peter says, 
False teachers bring in heresy, then be assured true teachers will proclaim what we call to be orthodoxy. That is upright doctrine. The true teachings of scriptures, in other words. True teachers will point people to the teachings of the Bible which bring life. If, as Peter says, false teachers promote sensuality, then be assured that true teachers will promote both in their words and the way they live. They will promote the way of virtue, which includes, by the way, displaying before you humility and repentance. If, as Peter says, false teachers blaspheme the way of truth, be assured true teachers will make known to you Jesus Christ, the way of truth. They will make known to you the true gospel. If, as Peter says, false teachers will seek to exploit you, then be assured a true teacher will seek your spiritual good. Even at the cost of their own reputation, even at the cost of their own good, even if you don't want to hear what it is that they are telling you, a true teacher will tell it to you for your own spiritual good. True teachers, in other words, will always be seeking what is best for your souls. If, as Peter says, false teachers lead you to judgment, then, beloved, be assured of this. A true teacher will point you not to judgment, but to reconciliation to the triune God through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. True teachers will, will warn you of judgment. They will warn you and tell you of your need to repent. They will point you towards the path of everlasting life that is yours through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone.